quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Simply the best. The lead starts right now. Remembering an entertainment legend, Tina Turner, dead at the age of 83. Plus, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis bucking the trend less than two hours to go before the Florida Republican uses Twitter and Elon Musk to launch his campaign for president. Coming up, how Donald Trump, the frontrunner, is responding to DeSantis's unconventional approach. And we're not going to default. We're going to solve this problem. Oh, really? How's that going to happen? We have only eight days left until the U.S. possibly hits default. Here, what else is and is not on the table as negotiators on both sides go back to the debt limit drawing board today to try to avoid economic catastrophe. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with some sad news in our pop culture lead. Music legend Tina Turner has died at the age of 83. A post on her verified Facebook account gives no details, but says in part, today we say goodbye to a dear friend who leaves us all her greatest work, her music. Tina, we will miss you dearly. The queen of rock and roll rose to fame from rather humble beginnings and overcame an infamously horribly abusive marriage to become one of the most popular female artists of all time. CNN's Stephanie Elam takes a look now at Tina Turner's extraordinary life and career. Proud Mary was one of Tina Turner's signatures, showcasing her unique sound, look, and moves. That's my style. I take great songs and turn them into rock and roll songs on stage. Icon, survivor, a queen of rock and roll. Tina Turner began life as Anna Mae Bullock in rural Tennessee. As a teenager, she moved to St. Louis, where she met rocker Ike Turner. Ike was very good to me when I first started my career. Started to sing weekends with him, and we were really close friends. The Ike and Tina Turner Review's first hit came in 1960 with A Fool in Love, a song they performed on Shindig. They married in 1962 and in 1966 recorded River Deep, Mountain High. It was a hit overseas, but flopped in the U.S. Offstage, Ike's drug abuse fueled violent outbursts. I had had a lot of violence. Houses burned, cars shot into the lowest that you can think of in terms of violence. After years of physical and emotional abuse, Tina left Ike in the mid-70s with nothing but her name, at one point relying on food stamps to survive. In the early 80s, Turner's cover of Let's Stay Together reignited her career. 
Private Dancer followed in 1984, a runaway critical and commercial success. The album featured her only number one song. Though she wasn't a fan. I didn't like it. I wasn't accustomed to singing those kind of songs. It was also the title of a 1993 film starring Angela Bassett based on Tina's autobiography. Did the picture do it justice? Yes, I think in a way I, I would have liked for them to have had more truth, but according to Disney, this, it's impossible that people would not have believed the truth. Turner herself appeared in movies such as The Who's Tommy and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. She sang its theme song. We don't need another hero. As well as the theme to the James Bond film Goldeneye. With a One major role she turned down would go to Oprah Winfrey in The Color Purple. It was too close to my personal life. I had just left such a life, and it was too soon to be reminded of. The What's Love Got to Do With It soundtrack gave Turner another hit. Her personal favorite? You're simply the best. It was very special because at the time when I got it, no one believed in it but me. Turner continued recording and touring into her 80s. She was honored by the Kennedy Center in 2005 and inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo act in 2021, 30 years after her first induction as part of a duo with Ike Turner. All the while, her Buddhist faith kept her going. The cause you make this lifetime can be the effect of a better life the next, next lifetime. It will be better and gets better and better. The word icon may get used a lot. It is not overused when we talk about Tina Turner. We talk about that voice. As soon as you heard a few notes, you knew it was Tina Turner. Those dance moves, those legs, and most importantly, the way she protected herself. You knew her story, but she also continued to live in her happiness and her joy as she broke barriers for women, for female performers, for also black artists as well, saying she would not be siloed. Uh, if you take a look now here in Hollywood, you can see that people are out there uh, giving her her flowers literally right now on the Hollywood Walk of Fame uh, as people are remembering Tina Turner, who was beloved across so many boundaries for all of the barriers that she broke down and all of the wonderful music and performances that she left us with, Jake. Yeah, and also an incredibly important um, survivor of domestic violence for others, a real inspiration that, that one can move beyond uh, such trauma. Stephanie Elam, thank you so much for that powerful report. Uh, moments ago, the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, noted the life and career of Tina Turner. Take a listen. Tina Turner uh, was an icon. Uh, a music icon who had uh, many stages uh, and many uh, amazing moments in her career. Uh, very sad to hear the news. And it is a massive loss, massive loss to the communities that, uh, that loved her uh, and certainly to the music industry. And uh, her music uh, will live, will continue to live on. Very sad news. Uh, our hearts go out to her family and her friends. And as Stephanie pointed out, Tina Turner was also a Kennedy, Center's honors, Kennedy Center Honors recipient here in Washington, D.C. Former President George W. Bush congratulated her class at a White House reception in 2005. Joining us now to discuss is longtime radio DJ Donnie Simpson, the former host of Video Soul on BET. Uh, Donnie, thanks so much for joining us. You've been in the industry for decades. What is your reaction to the sad news? 
I mean, I'm just shocked. You know, just shocked. I mean, like everyone, I, I never thought we'd lose Tina. You know, I, I guess I felt like if she could survive Ike, she could survive life. She could survive death. You know, it's just, it just never crossed my mind that we would lose this woman. You know, such an iconic figure on so many levels. Um, you know, just not just in terms of music and entertainment, but empowering women in situations like hers uh, to uh, show them where to find that strength, you know, to move on from situations like she was in. I mean, you just, you cannot overestimate the power of this woman. I, the word icon is used a lot. In this case, it's 100% correct in yeah. all caps. This woman was iconic. How do you think she'll be remembered, Tina Turner? What, what do you think she'll be most known for, most remembered for? Yeah, actually, I think it would be the last thing. I mean, you know, I mean, her, her music was incredible. She was, you know, the queen of rock, but also R and B. Uh, uh, but just that one personal thing that she let us in on—that we didn't know what was happening at the time—but that she let us in on her life, how tragic it was, uh, living under Ike Turner, if you will, and um, to let people in to that to show them how to get out of it, to take control of your, not just your life, but your career, you know, was just so empowering for women, I think, that I, I really do believe that when all is said and done, that that is the thing that will be most remembered about uh, Tina's life. It, I was, it meant so much to others. I was just watching a clip of, of Tina Turner performing with uh, Beyonce and uh, thinking about how she how Tina Turner paved the way for other stars, such as Beyonce. Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, she did. I mean, she was knocking doors down. I mean, Tina, you know, she did stuff that most of I mean, for a sister like that to be able to perform as, as a rock star, you know, to tour the world with Mick Jagger and the Stones. I mean, it just, though, while it's different, you're looking at it as it's different for the time, that she's doing something others aren't doing, but it is opening doors for those who are yet to come. You know, uh, Beyonce is, you know, arguably the biggest star in the world between her and Taylor Swift, I guess. And, you know, but you, you're talking about a woman who is in control 100% of her career, of what she does. And, you know, I don't know if that comes directly from Tina Turner, but I can tell you this, Tina Turner has a lot to do with uh, recreating that, a mold uh, to say that you can do this yourself. You know, the, you know, we we don't need men to uh, to do what we do. You know, we can control this. Indeed, indeed, Donnie Simpson. Thank you so much for those memories. Really appreciate it. We're going to have much more on the life and legendary career of Tina Turner uh, coming up on the show. Also, this hour, the new CNN poll on the race for president in 2024, just as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is about to launch his campaign in just under two hours. Now it's time for our 2024 lead, the man who currently appears to pose the biggest threat to Donald Trump winning the Republican nomination for president, has officially entered the race. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis filed the paperwork to run for president this afternoon, and in less than two hours, he is set to make his public announcement during a audio event on Twitter with Elon Musk. But in the hours leading up to his grand reveal, the attacks against DeSantis 
have escalated, giving the governor just a taste of what he can expect as the campaign for the White House begins to ramp up. Other presidential hopefuls are also on the trail today. Ambassador Nikki Haley in New Hampshire, Congressman, I'm sorry, Senator uh, Tim Scott in Iowa. Uh, one of the reasons why DeSantis is thought to pose such a serious threat to Trump is his ability to fundraise. DeSantis and his allies currently have more than $100 million in the bank. So let's start with CNN's Jessica Dean, who's in Miami, where a DeSantis donor retreat is currently underway. And Jessica, a DeSantis-aligned group is already out with a new video labeling DeSantis a president for the people. That's right, Jake. And so begins the official rollout of Ron DeSantis's presidential campaign, and it just keeps going. We saw that super PAC releasing the video not too long ago, and interestingly, it zeroed right in on his biography and took swipes not at his Republican rivals, but at President Joe Biden and Democrats. And that is something that we can expect to see more and more of as he really tries to contrast himself with President Biden and with the Democrats in power, saying that he can be the one uh, that uh, can move the country forward in the direction that Americans want it to go. That's going to be a big part of his pitch. We also saw him, as you mentioned, filing that official paperwork with the FEC today that will make him a candidate for president in 2024. And the donor retreat that is underway, $100 million. It's an historic figure that's behind him once he launches this campaign. And they want an even bigger number. They really want a fundraising blitz out of this. That's why they've gathered all of these donors together here in Miami uh, to really start bundling that money as this campaign officially gets underway. And then, of course, we go to the big announcement tonight, Jake, which is unconventionally going to be on Twitter. Audio only is what we are expecting, that we will only be able to hear this conversation between Elon Musk and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, as he talks about his announcement to run for president. So it will be interesting to see how that all plays out. It is certainly an unconventional choice. That is not by accident, Jake. His political team really wants to do this in a different way. They want to make unconventional choices and reach people in a way they think they can reach them directly. And this goes right in with that. And then looking ahead, we can see him, we see, we'll anticipate seeing him hitting that campaign trail in the early states very aggressively as early as next week. Jake. All right, Jessica Dean in Miami, thanks so much. Let's turn now to the new CNN poll numbers I told you about showing how Republican voters feel about DeSantis and the other Republicans running for president. Let's bring in CNN political director David Chalian. Uh, David, what do you got? Well, if you take a look at the snapshot that is right now the horse race among Republican and Republican-leaning independents, you see that Donald Trump is the formidable frontrunner. Take a look. 53% of Republicans and Republican leaners support Donald Trump. Again, right now, where we are, 26% support Ron DeSantis. He's got about half as much support as Trump. And then you see he's in a category by himself because everybody else not named Trump is in single digits. I want to show you, Jake, how this race has moved over the last few months as Trump has been hammering away at DeSantis while he's been doing his day job as the governor of Florida. So again, now 53% to 26%, but a little over two months ago in March, it was a much closer race between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis in our polling. You see 40% to 36%. So clearly Trump has opened up a significant lead here but I don't think that should fool us to think that that's where this race necessarily ends up. This is just the starting game. Yeah, it's very early. And, and David, our, our, our poll also asked voters who they would consider supporting 
other than their first choice. I think this was a really fascinating result. Exactly. So we wanted to get a sense of who are you open to? Who have you ruled out? And if you look here, overwhelming majorities of Republicans and Republican leaners are open to supporting Ron DeSantis. 85% uh, say that he would consider supporting him or that he is their, he is their first choice. 84% say so for Donald Trump. And then smaller majorities say that for Nikki Haley, 61% would consider Tim Scott, 60%. Mike Pence even has a slim majority of Republicans and Republican leaders here who would consider his candidacy. That, if you're in that group there, you see a potential opportunity for growth. But we ask the flip side too, Jake, who are you ruling out? Who will you not support at all? Uh, these are some rough numbers for someone like Chris Christie. 60% of Republicans in this poll suggest they will not even consider supporting Chris Christie for the nomination. 55% say so of Asa Hutchinson and Chris Sununu. 47% Larry Elder. 46% say that about Vivek Ramaswamy. And again, 45% say that about Mike Pence. You see about the Republican Party is split almost in half about whether or not they would consider Mike Pence. One other note here, and I think this is really telling too. We ask folks, who do you want to learn more about, okay, besides your first choice? And this, I think, is where opportunity exists. 29% of these Republican and Republican leaners say they want to learn more about and hear more about Tim Scott. 28% say that about DeSantis. 24% say that about Haley and Ramaswamy. Those are large chunks of potential newcomers to their cause. That, those are the folks looking to buy or at least hear what those folks are selling. And so there's opportunity there. All right, David Chalian, stick with us. We're going to talk about this more. Donald Trump is, of course, taking note of today's campaign launched by DeSantis. See how he is trying to make it clear he is very different than the Florida governor. Stay with us. And we're back and sticking with our 2024 lead. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis set to announce his presidential campaign officially in just over 90 minutes. His brand new CNN poll numbers show how he is faring amongst Republicans compared to Donald Trump, the frontrunner, and other rivals. My panel joins me now. Uh, and, and Dana, let me start with you, um, because David just brought us these new CNN poll numbers, which include this comparison of a Trump-DeSantis matchup. Uh, Trump has gained 13% of Republican support in the last two months. DeSantis has lost 10% of support. Does that surprise you? No, given what we've seen uh, on the campaign trail uh, from Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. Donald Trump has benefited from the indictments, which is still <laughs> hard to say because it is so antithetical to what is supposed to happen in the world of politics, but he has. And, uh, and Ron DeSantis has had stumbles on a number of fronts. But his campaign, the DeSantis campaign, is obviously looking at a reset. It is also odd to have a reset on the day that you are announcing. <laughs> it should just be a set. But he, they are. And uh, my understanding and talking to sources who have talked to Ron DeSantis is that he seems to be more uh, understanding of some of the things that he has done wrong, uh, basic things when it comes to his approach to campaigning, when it comes to his approach to Donald Trump and when it comes to um, kind of the way that that he is framed, uh, the way that he is framed his, the, the voters and his connection or maybe lack of connection mm -hmm. until the last couple of weeks in Iowa uh, with voters. So um, one of the other reasons why I think it's fair to say that Trump has gone up a little in the polls and, and DeSantis has gone down is because Trump has been punching DeSantis mm -hmm. and DeSantis has not even really mentioned Trump's name or even until recently even alluded to Donald Trump, not by name. Um, the Trump team is out with a very 
brand new attack ad calling DeSantis a swamp creature and using some leaked video from one of DeSantis's debate prep sessions uh, from 2018. Take a look. In Washington, one was a leader and one let us down. Even DeSantis admitted there are big differences between him and Trump. Obviously there is because I've, I've been not voted contrary to him in the Congress. It is obvious, Ron. President Trump is the only one ready on day one to deliver for us again. So it's funny because it used to be that Donald Trump was was playing the ingrate card. Like, I made Ron DeSantis by endorsing him in 2018. He's so ungrateful. Now he's completely memory-holed the idea that he endorsed Ron DeSantis, and he's just calling him a swamp creature. Right. I mean, he's playing every card, frankly. He's attacking him on his positions on Social Security, on the national uh, tax plan, a sales tax plan, basically everything. But that is obviously one of the reasons, probably a leading reason, that Governor DeSantis is entering uh, this race in a weaker uh, position. Um, there was a sense of arrogance around the DeSantis uh, team back when I was in Tallahassee when he was being sworn in for a second term. That is gone. I mean, the reality is he's, uh, I guess you can, I guess, look charitably on this. His expectations are now in check. Mm-hmm. Um, the the reality here, though, is there is still a hunger from Republican voters uh, for an alternative, at least among some Republican voters. Of course, with every new Republican who gets in the race, the uh, pie is uh, sliced up a little bit and it helps Donald Trump. But I think we just have to see how the governor does once he is out of the friendly confines of Twitter this afternoon, this evening, after his uh, Fox interview. Once he hits the road, potentially this weekend and definitely next week. How does he do with those voter questions? There are going to be many Republicans who have questions about uh, his policies. Uh, Some are popular, but every state does not necessarily want to be like Florida. So I think uh, today's important, but tomorrow and the next day, much more important. What do you think is his biggest challenge, Ron DeSantis? I think his biggest challenge is figuring out how to hit Trump without missing out on the huge chunk of voters in the Republican Party that like Donald Trump. A lot of times I will see in focus groups, Republicans will confess to you that there are lots of things about Donald Trump that drive them nuts. But the moment that someone from outside the camp starts criticizing Trump, the moment that they start hearing kind of never Trump arguments, they immediately put up that defensive wall. Don't you dare come after my guy. And it'll be interesting to see, does Ron DeSantis have the credibility with the conservative base because of all of the things that he has done as governor of Florida to be able to lob those attacks at Trump and actually make them stick rather than the attacks themselves pushing Ron DeSantis to be on the outside. And I think that is exactly why what you are pointing out is why we're seeing Nikki Haley today Mm -hmm. take the attack on DeSantis she's taking, which is to make her a Donald Trump twin or echo, as she calls him, because she wants to force him into the same camp to free up what you're saying, Jeff, uh, uh, an avenue for her in the non-Trump world. It's it's interesting. Let's uh, let's run this ad. Nikki Haley... uh, uh, Nikki, oh, I'm sorry. This is not the ad, actually. It's during a campaign stop today. Uh, she accused DeSantis of copying Trump. Take a listen. You look at the fact that the way he speaks, the way his hand gestures are, the fact that he's moved his policies, whether it's Ukraine and Russia, to entitlement reform, he's done a total 180. All of it's copying Trump. He needs to be his own person. It's interesting. And I mean, there, there are policy differences that she's talking about there. Uh, but she's basically saying that he's not even his own man, Ron DeSantis. He's just copying Donald Trump. Yes, and in the ad I was referencing, I mean, she, they actually show him side by side doing the hand gesture she's talking about or the imitation. But again, it's to I, the goal here, it seems, is to uh, narrow Ron, uh, Ron DeSantis's ability as best she can to reach out beyond the Trump base and the Trump fans.
Do you think that will work for Nikki Haley and the idea that, like, the, I mean, it's, it's a way of diminishing Ron DeSantis to say he's copying Donald Trump? Uh, it's pretty much one of the most important plays that she has right now, because Nikki Haley is like Tim Scott, like others who are not Donald Trump. Uh, they are in the hunt for voters who just don't want Donald Trump. They just don't want Donald Trump. And right now, uh, Ron DeSantis is at the top of that field. And what she's trying to do is say to voters, oh, really? You don't like Donald Trump? Well, this guy's just like Donald Trump. I mean, mm. it's, her, it's her only play right now. And it's calling him weak, too. I mean, she's essentially uh, sort of emasculating him there. You know, he's basically mm. uh, following a suit with Donald Trump. Um, we'll see how much attention that actually gets. But, but the times I've been out on the road with Governor Zantis um, and voters, they are interested in him. And they know him much more than... Um, a young governor of Florida generally, because he's been such a part of the in the moment. He's in the moment um, in terms of all these the laws he's passed. He's on Fox constantly. Um, so the others have a lot of ground to make up, and they know that. But the, one of the other things Nikki Haley's doing in that is talking about issues, and, and she's portraying uh, DeSantis and Trump as uh, not per se isolationist, but, but weaker on foreign policy in her construct. Than her, she portrays herself as a muscular more, uh, foreign policy person, more in the in the in the in the vein of Ronald Reagan. Well, it's no. I don't think it's a coincidence that Ron DeSantis's numbers began to fall a little bit around the time that he did take that position on Ukraine, where he called the conflict there a territorial dispute instead of an invasion by Vladimir Putin. And I think any time you assume that Republicans are not here for fighting Russians, you have forgotten about some sort of very old DNA in the Republican Party kind of going back to the Cold War. Now, certainly there is a new strain in the GOP, particularly younger Republicans, who are not necessarily interested in, say, robust engagement in Ukraine. But I think Nikki Haley is gambling that even if it's not a majority yet, there is still some longing and hunger for what the Republican Party looked like maybe a little bit before Donald Trump, with some bits and pieces of things Donald Trump changed for the, the better in her view, but some things that he's changed for the worse. Let's go back. That's where I think she's trying to go. And, and quickly on that, uh, what happened with Ukraine, I was talking to a Republican lawmaker who does not want Donald Trump to be the nominee does want Ron DeSantis, who said to him point blank, whatever you do, just know you can never out-Trump Trump, so stop trying. Interesting. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Nikki Haley will face voters at the next CNN presidential town hall. I'm going to get to moderate that one. It's going to be in Iowa. That's next Sunday, June 4th, 8 o'clock Eastern, only here on CNN. It was right around this hour last year when we began learning about a gunman's rampage in an elementary school, how the victims of that horrific day in Uvalde, Texas, are being remembered one year later. Church bells ringing, a moment of silence in Texas's Senate chambers, flags flown at half-staff, just some of the many tributes today marking one year since the horrific massacre at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. For the families, it is, of course, Yet another day reliving the moment when 19 fourth graders and two teachers were mercilessly slaughtered by a gunman. It's also a reminder of the police and them not doing their jobs, waiting 77 minutes to intervene, failing to save the people, the children who needed them to save them. Just a short while ago at the White House, President Biden called upon Congress to do more on gun reform. How many more parents will live their worst nightmare before we stand up to the gun lobby. 
Joining us now to discuss Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas, who represents the city of Uvalde. Uh, Congressman, it has been a rough year uh, for Uvalde, rough year for people uh, watching this. It's a tragic, tragic gut-wrenching massacre. Um, and yet, uh, even though it's been a year, parents still fighting to get answers, still, still fighting for accountability. Why is it taking so long? Will they ever get the answers that they deserve? Yeah, thank you, Jake, for having me back on. And, and they absolutely deserve the answers uh, to what happened that day. And it's not only the families that were impacted, it's the entire community, it's the entire country, uh, to be honest. You know, here in a few minutes, uh, here in, in the, uh, the House of Representatives, uh, I'm going to lead a moment of silence uh, to honor those families. But in my eyes, there's no better way to honor the, the, the victims than to bring uh, light to what happened. And I met yesterday with the associate uh, attorney general about a Department of Justice investigation on Uvalde that I think uh, we're going to see wrap up in, here in a few months. Um, I, I, I don't have any details just yet. It's an ongoing investigation, but I think this is very important. This is going to lead us to uh, ideally a, a, an outside look on what happened that day. And ultimately, how do we prevent it from happening again? The other part of it, too, is Congress. I, I agree with the president. Congress has a role to play. The president also has a role to play. And I am less interested in pointing fingers and blaming other folks. And I'm more interested in working with others to get meaningful pieces of legislation done. You know, I'm a, I'm a conservative. I'm a Republican. I believe in protecting the Constitution. I think we can do both that and protect our children in schools. So you have supported some gun safety legislation, such as the Bipartisan Safer, Safe, Safer Community Act that was signed into law last June after Uvalde. Uh, according to the Gun Violence Archive, there has already been there have already been 241 mass shootings in the United States just this year. 241. Um, doesn't more need to be done to stop it? It seems like the very obvious place to do it is to try to keep people who are obviously risk at risk of harming themselves or others from being able to obtain weapons. We've seen so many incidents of people that, that family and friends knew w- w- the person was in a bad place and yet they were able to go legally purchase guns and commit horrific acts of violence. You're absolutely right, Jake. More has to be done. I was proud to have supported the uh, Bipartisan Safers Community Act. Since that bill has been signed into law, there's been over 160 cases in which minors that, that had mental ill uh, issues did not, uh, were not able to purchase a firearm. I think, I think that is, that's a success. Uh, it was the largest investment in mental health in our nation's history. But part of the problem has been getting the money from Washington, D.C. down to the communities. I'll give you an example. Last year, I had six of my communities submit uh, COPS grants. And guess what? I put a letter of support behind these grants, and they were all denied. I, I met with the attorney general afterwards, and we're working together on how to fix that. But it can't just be legislation without the money and, and the resources making it down to the ground. Uh, also, I started uh, myself and Representative uh, Moskowitz, who represents Parkland, Florida. You know what happened there uh, nearly five years ago. Uh, uh, we started this bipartisan school safety and security caucus. We kicked it off today. I thought it was a very productive conversation. I'm looking at what can we, how can we pass meaningful legislation in the 118th Congress? I get what other people want, but how can we move the ball forward today in this Congress? All right. Well, that's really important. And I hope you and, uh, and Congressman Moskowitz uh, come on the show and talk about some of the proposals uh, you have. You have faced intense criticism from Republicans in Texas, uh, Republican Party officials. You were even censured in March. Um, are you confident you can continue to, to, to fight for meaningful reforms 
when your own party is attacking you. I am confident in that. Uh, you know, Jake, I spent 20 years in the military, as you know, five years in Iraq and Afghanistan. I also have six children. So what does that mean? That means I don't, I don't scare easy. So I think it's important that we put politics aside and do what's right for the country. And once again, I think we can protect the Constitution and protect our kids. It doesn't have to be either or, it, but it does take political will, political courage, and it takes those like myself and, and Representative Moskowitz that want to come together and, and not point fingers, but find solutions. I'm very confident in that. And I think the American people are looking for that as well. It also takes people in the community to use these red flag laws. The red flag laws don't mean anything if family and friends aren't actually the ones raising the red flag. Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. The new letter from Donald Trump's legal team that may be a sign, maybe, that Special Counsel Jack Smith is nearing the end of his investigations into the former president. Stay with us. Our Law and Justice Lead Now, Attorney General Merrick Garland, you've got mail. It's from Donald Trump's attorneys, and they're requesting a meeting with Garland in what could be the final days of the investigation into Donald Trump by Special Counsel Jack Smith. The letter from Trump's attorneys claims, quote, no president of the United States has ever, in the history of our country, been baselessly investigated in such an outrageous and unlawful fashion, unquote. CNN's senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed's here, along with former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers, Paula, the big question, I guess, does this letter indicate that Trump and his team are under the impression that he's about to be indicted? Multiple sources tell us, Jake, that the Justice Department has not signaled to the Trump legal team that there are any indictments imminent or that they've even finished up their investigation. It is not unusual for defense attorneys to meet with prosecutors at the end of an investigation when they've been informed that perhaps their client could be indicted. They're allowed to come in sometimes, make a presentation about why charges shouldn't be filed. But that's not what we're dealing with here. Well, we have reported that it does appear that the special counsel's Mar-a-Lago investigation, the probe into the possible mishandling of classified documents, is in its final phase. We know that investigators are still receiving new evidence, even as recently as today. We also expect they could hear from more witnesses. So this investigation is not over. There's absolutely no indication that there are indictments uh, pending right now. It appears that this is just a request for a meeting. I mean, this legal team is effectively saying, we don't like this and we want to talk to the manager, who in this case is the Attorney General of the United States. Paul, does Garland actually have to agree to meet? No, I don't think he has to do anything at all. Politically, though, what's a little tricky here is that several weeks ago, the Justice Department did grant a similar request from attorneys for Hunter Biden. So let's just be honest here. I mean, these are two highly political investigations, right? A lot of people are watching. And even though they are different in subject, in nature, um, in content, even where they are and how long they've been ongoing, to the average American, if Hunter Biden's lawyers can ask for an update and the opportunity to present their arguments to the Justice Department and Trump asks for the same thing and doesn't get it, I think the average American is going to have a lot of difficulty understanding that. So the Justice Department is going to have to find some way, likely, optically, to accommodate this request. But the idea that they're going to get an audience with the attorney general, that's a stretch. Uh, It's unclear, though, who else they could meet with, because, again, the special counsel is supposed to operate independently just with, you know, answering to the attorney general. So it puts the Justice Department in a tough spot. Jennifer, today's special counsel Smith is is set to receive a batch of documents from the National Archives that were told uh, show that Trump and his top advisors had been told of the correct process for declassification while Trump 
was president. You, do, could these documents be significant for Jack Smith's case, do you think? Yeah, these are important, uh, Jake, because, you know, in the normal case, you might infer that the president would know the classification procedures. And yet he continues to say that they were automatically declassified, these documents and, and other things that indicate that either he doesn't know or just rejects the actual classification processes. So it's important for the Justice Department to be able to prove that he actually does know that things don't get automatically declassified. So these documents coming over from the National Archives that demonstrate that he and his advisors actually did know the law are going to be important for the Justice Department to prove intent here. So, Paula, you said that that they had not been told, the Trump people, that this was over, that indictments were imminent. But you had this great interview with Tim Partolore, who just left legals, the legal team of Donald Trump. And here's what he said. Here was his view of the state of the special counsel investigation. At this point, they have kind of turned over every stone, interviewed every witness, and now they just have to write up the report to Merrick Garland to say, this is all of the stuff we've done. So Parlatory claims the special counsel has turned over every stone. But as you note, it's not clear whether Jack Smith has interviewed Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Has he? Exactly. And I think that was my next question to Tim was, wait a second, you say that, but one of the most significant witnesses, certainly in the January 6th investigation, but someone who could also be useful in the Mar-a-Lago probe is former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. And interestingly, the Trump legal team has no indication of what is going on with Mark Meadows. From our own very extensive and detailed reporting, we also don't know what is going on with Mark Meadows. And it's very difficult to believe the Trump team when they're like, yep, everything's been done. They've spoken to everyone. If they're completely in the dark and have had no communication with Mark Meadows, attorney. So that's really the big outstanding question right now is if he's cooperating and if and when he will go before the grand jury. All right, Paula Reed and Jennifer Rogers, thanks so much. A busy afternoon here on The Lead as the U.S. gets closer to a possible default. Some Democrats are starting to blame their own party for a debt limit deal not having been done. Plus the passing of legendary singer and entertainer Tina Turner. New reactions coming in and What really led a Florida school district to restrict access to a poem from the poet who spoke at President Biden's inauguration? We'll get into all of that. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour... This hour, we bid adieu to music legend Tina Turner, the new statement just in from her family. Then, this inauguration poem is back in the news. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always just is. Astoundingly, Amanda Gorman's poem has been removed from the elementary school section of a Florida public library after just one parent complained that that line can indoctrinate students. And leading this hour, we're just moments away from the biggest threat to Donald Trump's winning the Republican presidential nomination, officially announcing his 2024 bid, at least based on today's polls. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' big reveal will come during a live audio event on Twitter with Elon Musk. At 6 p.m. Eastern, Trump has focused his attacks entirely on DeSantis and is even attempting to counter-program DeSantis' Twitter event. The big question, will Trump use this moment to make his return to Twitter? Let's go straight to CNN's Steve Contorno, who's following DeSantis' upcoming announcement 
live from Miami. Steve, what are we expecting from this audio event on Twitter with Elon Musk? Well, Jake, Ron DeSantis has already filed the paperwork to run for president this afternoon, so all that is left for him to do is to say the words, I'm running for president, and we expect him to do that tonight at this virtual town hall with Elon Musk. The event will start in about an hour and last for about an hour, and during that time, he will take questions, he will give a statement, and he will finally enter this race. He has spent months and months on this slow rollout. He's been on the road, he's had a book tour, he's done international travel, and now it becomes official. His campaign has been hyping this moment for the last couple of days, including posting this video to Twitter on the media, social media account of Casey DeSantis, his wife. Do I have the courage? Is it worth the sacrifice? America has been worth it every single time. Now, DeSantis also took care of a bit of housekeeping today. He officially signed a bill that makes clear that he does not have to resign his current office in order to run for president. That is a quirk in Florida law that requires that for most candidates. However, they have made an exception for Ron DeSantis, and he has signed it into law today. Once DeSantis makes the announcement uh, in about an hour, then what? What happens next? Well, he has assembled a hundred of his donors in a conference room in, in Miami at a hotel here, and he is, and they are expected to immediately start raising money. They are meet, some of them are meeting tonight. Tomorrow, a big group of them will actually gather with DeSantis, and he will give them the go-ahead to start making those calls. And then from there, he will hit the campaign trail. We expect him to mount an aggressive campaign to immediately start to address the concerns that he is not ready to run for president, that, that he, his agenda has been too divisive, that he is not clear-eyed about the challenge of taking on Trump. He has been working behind the scenes with donors to quiet some of those concerns, and now it is the time for him to address them publicly as he officially becomes this candidate who is supposed to take on Donald Trump and wrestle the future of the party away from him. Jake. All right, Steve Contorno in Miami, thanks so much. Let's discuss with our team here. And Caitlin, let me start with you. DeSantis has had a rocky few months as a presidential prospect, and and Trump has been able to widen his polling lead over the Florida governor by a significant margin. What do you think DeSantis needs to do today and going forward to try to recapture some of the momentum in the race that we saw him have earlier? Yeah, well, what we know, Jake, is he has established himself. He's got a strong national name ID. He has a lot of money, as Steve was noting there. But the key here and what is going to change is how he distinguishes himself from Trump in a party that is still so dominated by him. And, you know, now that he is making it official, when he's been asked in recent months and weeks, as he was when he was on that trip to Japan back at the end of April, uh, about those poll numbers and the fact that there is about an average of a 30-point difference between him and Trump, he said, well, I'm not a candidate yet. Well, of course, today he becomes one. Officially, he became one yesterday. And so that is the question here, is how he distinguishes himself from Trump without alienating his voters, but shows that he can still be, you know, that dominant force in the Republican Party that he was once seen as. That is obviously going to be the biggest test for him going forward. Um, he's been polishing up his stump speech. He'll be trying that out on the campaign trail. I think it obviously remains to be seen what it looks like now that he is officially in the race. And David, uh, DeSantis regularly takes questions from uh, Florida reporters, wherever he is. But when it comes to longer interviews, he pretty much sticks to friendly outlets like Fox. Uh, even today, he's speaking with Elon Musk, who's already really kind of expressed some support, at least uh, tacitly, for DeSantis. And then he's going to talk to Trey Gowdy 
on Fox, a former Republican colleague of his from when he was a Republican in the House. Um, do you think he needs to step outside uh, of this this bubble for and do more longer interviews and such? Yeah, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. He's going to have to do that. You're correct. Um, he, 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 people do know Ron DeSantis across the United States, but he's really going to be out. Um, on the stump, introducing himself to people, introducing himself, his ideas, who he is as a person. He gives a great speech. He's a very bright guy, but people are going to want to see if he has it, that intangible it. Is he likable? Can he exchange and sit down and, and, and have an exchange with somebody at a diner in New Hampshire or in Iowa with the cameras glaring, not being kicked out, not having the media leave, but having the media stay there and watch the interchange. People are going to want to see that. And he's going to need to do lots of that. Say what you want about Donald Trump. He is not shy with the media. He walks up to the rope line, <laughs> takes questions from unfriendly reporters, and uh, and takes lots of questions and give and take at every off-the-record stop he does. So I think people are going to be judging Governor DeSantis against um, Donald Trump and others who are in the race doing that exact same thing, Jake. And, and Karen, DeSantis, we should point out, he won re-election uh, handily in November, a nearly 20-point win in a state that's normally known for razor-thin margins. He even won the Latino vote by 18 points. He won Democratic stronghold Miami-Dade County. I mean, if he's able to replicate that nationally, that, that's bad, and that's a big if. But still, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's a threat to Democrats. Well, it is. But again, I think the next 24 hours are critically important for Ron DeSantis because, again, the hype is meeting the hype, right? There was so much hype about his candidacy. And then we heard from within Republican ranks some disappointment. And so now that he is actually becoming a declared candidate, can he do exactly what David was just saying? Can he meet the hype? Can he? How is he on the campaign trail? But as he does that, as he has to try to make gains not just with Republican Party donors, which he seems to be very popular with, can he peel away support not only from Donald Trump uh, and build that his own Republican base, but can he do that with an eye towards the general election, as you mentioned, Jake? And can he build support? I mean, he didn't have the same record that he does now having the six-week abortion ban, some of the things he's done on guns. I mean, he's a very extreme record. And so part of the question will be, can he win in a Republican primary and still create a pathway for himself that would be viable in a general election electorate, with, given that many of his policies are not very popular nationally? All right, you three stick around if you would. Donald Trump and his allies are planning a coordinated effort to upend DeSantis's launch today. CNN's Kristen Holmes is following this part of the story for us. And Kristen, what do we know how Donald, about how Donald Trump, who is the frontrunner by far, and his team are planning to counter-program uh, DeSantis's campaign kickoff. Well, Jake, we know if there's one thing that Donald Trump is good at, it is sucking up all of the oxygen, whether intentionally or not. And in this case, he and his team want to do that. They want to turn the narrative around, get the media attention away from Ron DeSantis and this announcement. That includes releasing videos around the announcement. It also includes a social media blitz. They are going to be relying heavily on these big conservative commentator, high profile uh, social media stars, new media stars to try and get messaging out. They plan on hitting Ron DeSantis on a number of issues. So far, we've really seen Trump go after Ron DeSantis most on entitlements, but we also are told that he's going to go after him on a range of policy issues, including trade policy, China, his COVID-19 response when he was the governor of Florida. And I do want to touch on one thing that you said. You mentioned at the top of your show whether or not Donald Trump would get back on Twitter tonight. That is something his aides have been urging him to do, to get back on Twitter since he was reinstated. They believe that it's easier for him to take control of the narrative in this GOP primary if he is back on Twitter. And I will tell you, 
three months ago, a Trump advisor floated the idea to me of actually getting him back on Twitter the night of Ron DeSantis' announcement. Now, that, of course, was before DeSantis announced he was doing this with Elon Musk on Twitter, but something to wait and watch and see, Jake. Christian Holmes, thanks so much. Uh, let's go back to our panel uh, for this part of the story. And Caitlin, it's very clear who Donald Trump sees as the threat to him in this race. When Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina announced on Monday, Trump wished him luck. Uh, mm-hmm. But with DeSantis, he's, he's launching Trump an all-out media blitz. Yeah, well, and if Tim Scott was polling where Ron DeSantis is, I think you would see Trump treating him the way he is treating Ron DeSantis. The other layer to this, of course, is back at what happened in 2018 when it was widely seen as Trump's influence on the party when he endorsed Ron DeSantis in that 2018 Republican primary for the governor's race in Florida. And obviously DeSantis came away from that with a victory. And that was seen as that. Things have really changed now, and he has been attacking him relentlessly um, from early on. Some people had urged him to wait until DeSantis actually got in the race. And instead, you know, you've heard from some Republicans in recent days questioning if DeSantis maybe waited too long to get into this Republican primary, and if he missed a window where he had a lot of momentum. We don't know that yet. Obviously, that's up to the voters. But the biggest question that Ron DeSantis has to answer is whether or not he is going to get Republican voters to move on from Trump. So far, they have not proven willing to do that, and that is going to be what he is up against on the campaign trail talking about that stump speech that David had just mentioned. So, David, I want to get your reaction to this new attack ad from Trump's super PAC uh, going after Ron DeSantis. Here's a little snippet. President Trump defeats the liberals and heads to Washington to drain the swamp. But swamp creature Ron DeSantis is about to start his third term in Congress, and he's already voted repeatedly to cut Social Security and Medicare. In Washington, one was a leader, and one let us down. Even DeSantis admitted there are big differences between him and Trump. Obviously there is, because I've I've been voted contrary to him in the Congress. I mean, first of all, he, he completely leaves out the part where he endorses Ron DeSantis as governor, uh, even though he's a swamp creature. But do you think that's effective? Well, listen, it's going to be effective in, in, in drawing a, a contrast in the narrative of Social Security, some of these entitlement programs that, that Americans are, you know, it's the third rail of American politics, right? You can't discuss Social Security, even though the, the system, as we know, is going to be bankrupt in the, in the future, um, not too distant future, excuse me. So, um, look, it's it's political. It's political fodder. There's going to be a, a, a good give and take from the Trump campaign on this. I think, you know, um, C- Caitlin hit it on the uh, nail on the head too. You know, let's not forget this is personal to Trump in some regards, and that he fi- he believes that he created Ron DeSantis in, in uh, endorsing him. He came from nowhere. DeSantis was down in the polls. He was really on the ropes and was going to lose. And then, uh, like a phoenix from the ashes, he arose with a Trump endorsement. And I think I think the president, former president, really does take it personally. And, and, uh, and, and we all know that um, Susie Wiles, the president's um, camp, one of his main campaign advisors, worked for Governor DeSantis and was dismissed in a not-too-nice fashion, according to her. And so I think this is personal for the Trump yeah. campaign as well. And, and Karen, uh, uh, Nikki Haley, uh, also running for president, um, mm-hmm. is also welcoming DeSantis uh, to the race with a, a negative ad. Um, take a look. You're fired. You're fired. Then Mr. Trump said, you're fired. I love that part. Make America great again. Make America great again. Anybody here would do it. Project to get Judges are a priority. And honestly, we have businesses that have been locked down in lives destroyed. 
America deserves a choice, not an echo, it says. Uh, yeah. Really uh, going after Ron DeSantis uh, as, as not even being his own man. Absolutely. I mean, she's clearly trying to undercut DeSantis's argument for why he is different than Trump, but Trumpy enough for the base, right? So she's clearly trying to cut into that. But if you think about it, I mean, that's really the best strategy she has at this point. I mean, as our polling has shown, people may be interested in learning more about who she is, but in order to try to really make some gains and move votes, she's got to try to show that she too can sort of take away some of the DeSantis mystique, if, if you will, um, before he really gets into this race and, and we see really what he can do. So that's kind of her, her best hope. I mean, it'll be interesting to see when we have all of these candidates on a stage, on a debate, how they interact with each other, not just how they do uh, on the campaign trail, but how they engage with each other around these issues. I'd be curious to see her try to make that argument to him, for example, uh, when he's you know just feet away from her on a debate stage. Thanks to all of you. And uh, Governor Nikki Haley is going to face voters in the next CNN presidential town hall. The former ambassador and South Carolina governor will be joining me in Iowa on June 4th, only on CNN. With Ron DeSantis announcing his campaign on Twitter, has the site become officially a conservative social media network? That's next. Plus, the typhoon that is walloping a U.S. territory with fierce winds, heavy rain, lots and lots of water. Plus, what's love got to do with it? A look at the life and legacy of musical icon Tina Turner. And we're back with our tech lead. Ron DeSantis' decision to announce his 2024 campaign uh, on Twitter with CEO Elon Musk has unleashed new criticism of Musk and Twitter. A new article in The Atlantic goes as far as declaring, quote, Twitter is a far-right social network. The author of that article, Charlie Warzel, uh, joins me now. Charlie, um, longtime reader, first-time caller. Uh, Musk has been sharing conspiracy theories on Twitter for months. He's reinstated white nationalist accounts that have been banned. Uh, so why make this declaration now? Well, I think that uh, you can just see over the last couple of weeks, honestly, uh, you know, and despite what Elon Musk is doing with his own tweets, right? Uh, you've seen the platform uh, as basically a like a, a safe haven for people who've either, you know, lost their sinecures on cable news or people who've been, you know, demonetized on Twitter. And I'm talking about uh, the Daily Wire, uh, which got demonetized a couple of their channels for uh, anti-trans uh, commentary, and Tucker Carlson, who lost his, uh, his tenure on Fox News. Those, those people are seeing Twitter as a safe place for them to go and, and perhaps to share revenue. Um, and Elon Musk seems to be, you know, welcoming them in with, with open arms. And, you know, yesterday was sort of the, uh, the, the, the last sort of making all the subtext text where, um, you know, he's inviting Ron DeSantis to come launch a political campaign there. Uh, so I think, you know, this isn't about the content that you can necessarily see. You could still obviously see liberal leftist, you know, mainstream media content, all sorts of stuff on Twitter. But when you talk about the actions and the outcomes at the platform that you're seeing on the platform, I think it's it's you know it's really just balls and strikes here. This is a a right wing social media platform. That's what it's courting. So Musk, if he were here right now, uh, would say, "Hey, it's just a free speech platform. It's just different than it was under the previous owners, and we're just inviting voices that were unfairly shut out." Um, why do you disagree? 
Well, I mean, I think that it's it's actually a a bit of a, a business strategy here. Um, when you are looking at some of the other, they're you know called alt tech, alternative tech platforms that have catered to conservatives, and I'm talking about you know Truth Social or Parler. Um, you're seeing that um, you know their numbers have actually gone down since Elon Musk has taken over the platform, and that's because there's uh, really you know no real need to build a a right-wing Twitter clone because Twitter serves that role so well right now. And I think, you know, if you look at, you know, Elon Musk's purchase in general of the platform, it was an explicitly political act. Yes, it's couched in the language of free speech, but what he's essentially saying is there is a lot of, um, you know, there's a woke mind virus out in the world, to, to quote him, and he wants to counter that by bringing all these different voices in and honestly, to drown out a lot of the voices that he doesn't like. And it, he, this is not a, you know, a town square. This is a, uh, a company that is run by a man who has a very specific ideology that he's not afraid to share with people. And I think he's making decisions with the, with the social network, with the platform that are intended to advance that ideology. And you see Ron DeSantis announcing his presidential race on Twitter Spaces, which is an audio uh, as part, as, as a natural progression of that. I do. I, I think that, you know, there are um, there are a lot of platforms that, uh, you know, he could that he could go to that Ron DeSantis could go to. He's choosing Twitter because he sees the owner as sympathetic to him as someone who's not going to, you know, say if he came on CNN and, you know, got raked over the coals, perhaps, or, or really pressed on a bunch of issues. Uh, he has a sympathetic audience here. And I think that he can see, too, that the, the people who are sort of left on Twitter now after there's been a big exodus and the people who are most sympathetic are are these people who share this ideology, who uh, love that, you know, DeSantis is, um, has an extremely online campaign and loves to own the libs. I think that, you know, these things are, are real reasons why, um, why DeSantis and his campaign chose Twitter as a venue. And I, I think that it's just more evidence that, you know, this platform is explicitly catering to and a safe space for uh, a, you know, a far right uh, ideology. Charlie Warzel, thank you so much. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. How one parent forced the school to remove Amanda Gorman's inaugural poem from the elementary school section of the Florida Public Schools Library. Wait until you hear the part that that parent objected to. Our money lead now. We are only eight days away from the deadline for the U.S. to raise the debt ceiling, according to the Secretary of the Treasury, and seemingly zero days closer to a deal that would avoid a first-ever catastrophic default by the U.S. government. Negotiations are continuing today as House Republicans and the White House seem to be at an impasse. Republicans say they want to raise the debt ceiling, but only if it includes spending cuts. Democrats say they want a clean bill to raise the debt ceiling. Joining us now for a bipartisan discussion, Democratic Congressman Brendan Boyle of Pennsylvania and Republican Congressman Drew Ferguson of Georgia. Thanks to both of you for being here. Congressman Ferguson, I want to start with you because one of your Republican colleagues, Matt Gates. Uh, who is referring uh, to the House GOP bill um, when he says limit, save, grow, just said this about the debt ceiling to Semaphore, uh, and I want to get your response to it. Let's take a listen to Congressman Gates. I think my conservative colleagues, for the most part, support limit, save, grow, and they don't feel like 
we should negotiate with our hostage. They don't feel like, meaning Republicans or conservative colleagues, that we should negotiate with our hostage. He seems to be saying that Republicans have taken the economy as a hostage. Is that how you view it? No, I don't. Look, we have done our work in the House. We're the only body here in Washington that's actually voted responsibly to, le- to, to raise the debt, debt limit. And we wish that our Senate colleagues would do the same. And we wish that, uh, that President Biden would have engaged in this debate earlier. Look, we have, we, we have got some very modest spending reforms out there, things that we know that Americans are for. And we just we need the other parties to come to the table. Congressman Boyle. Did your party make a mistake by not passing a clean debt ceiling bill last December when you still controlled the House? And why didn't you? Well, as you may know, Jake, I actually led an effort to do exactly that, as well as uh, pass some permanent reforms last term. And obviously, I I wish that uh, that would have taken place. But we're here uh, in the present right now. and, And so rather than worrying about or wondering what may have been, I think it's important to focus on the here and now. And I have a different uh, effort that I'm pushing, the discharge petition. We just reached 213 uh, signatures. Every single House Democrat has signed that petition. We are ready and willing to have a vote to raise the debt ceiling today and end this potential catastrophe once and for all. Uh, And I certainly hope that a number of uh, Republican colleagues will step up, add their name to that petition, and we can end this right now. Congressman Ferguson, uh, he needs uh, five Republicans to sign that discharge petition to force this bill onto the floor for a House for a clean debt ceiling bill. I know you're not there now, but would you do that if we were about to hit default and there was still no progress? Is that something you'd be willing to do? No, it is not, because we are going to make progress and we have got a spending problem in Washington, D.C., As a function of GDP, we have the highest tax receipts coming in that we've ever had. The problem is is that we have the highest spending that we've ever had, and it's unsustainable. And look, doing things like simply saying we're going to spend less money this year or next year than we did last year is not unreasonable. Thinking about getting our our able-bodied adults that are ages 19 to 49 to to work and participate in our economy. We need their participation in their economy in order to receive some federal benefits. That's not unreasonable. The the pandemic is over. Taking, clawing back unspent COVID funds makes sense. And America needs to be energy independent and on all fronts and good permitting reforms, both for fossil fuels and the green energy sector are reasonable ask. We think if we, those things go, go into place, it makes our economy grow, it makes it stronger, we're able to save some money, and we have already voted to raise the debt limit in this responsible manner. Congressman Boyle, polls indicate that 60% of the American people want the debt ceiling raised with spending cuts. Is there anything that your colleague just said there when he was l- making a list of things that he said are not unreasonable that you find unreasonable? Well, there are a few points to keep in mind, Jake. First, Uh, I voted a number of times, as did my Democratic colleagues, to raise the debt ceiling when Donald Trump was president. So did Republicans. Three increases in debt ceiling. None of them had any spending cuts. The only thing that has changed is that we now have a Democrat in the White House instead of a Republican. I have said, though, moving forward, um, of course I am willing to negotiate about what next year's budget looks like. We have to do that every year anyway by midnight September 30th. We certainly should have that negotiation but it should be separate on the fundamental question as to whether or not America will pay its bills. We must avoid default. That cannot be negotiable. 
But sure, we should negotiate about what spending looks next year and the year beyond. But let's be clear, when we talk about the national debt, there are two sides of that equation. There's the spending side, but there's also the revenue side. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, too many of my Republican friends want to pursue tax cuts for the richest 1% that only add trillions of dollars more to the national debt. Congressman well, Ferguson, I have to say, it doesn't sound like you two are very close. Um, when well, it look, I mean, it's, you know, we talk, we, we, we talk about uh, giving tax cuts to the wealthiest. Just look at the Inflation Reduction Act and the, now almost $1.2 trillion of green energy tax credits that are going to go to the richest companies and the richest individuals to offset their taxes. So there's a little hypocrisy here in this. Bottom line, look at the revenues coming in there at the highest level. Look at the spending right. that's at the highest level. We have got to focus on driving spending down. And by the way, what we're asking for to spend at 22 levels, that's exactly where we are right now. So if you think the world's going to come to an end, if we, if we spend at 22 levels, fiscal year 22 levels, what we're doing is spending exactly where we are right now. So, Congressman uh, Ferguson, we're out of time. So I just this is a yes or no question. Um, should Congress break for Memorial Day weekend, given the fact that you guys are still, your sides are still so far apart? Yes or no? Well, we've done our job in the House. We asked the Senate to come forward and do it. No, uh, we're, we're, willing to, to, we're willing to meet any time to solve this, this problem. Republican Congressman Drew Ferguson, Democratic Congressman Brendan Boyle, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. The library book battle that's being waged by just one parent at a Florida public school. Why Amanda Gorman's inaugural poem was targeted. Stay with us. In our national lead, some children at a school in Miami-Dade County, Florida, no longer have access to a poem, a G-rated poem, after one parent complained. The poem is called The Hill We Climb, it was recited by the author and poet Amanda Gorman at President Biden's inauguration in 2021. Listen to the part that was at the heart of this one parent's complaint. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always just is. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. I mean, I don't even understand what's objectionable in that. CNN's Carlos Suarez is in Miami. Carlos, even the part of the complaint uh, that had listed the author was wrong. They claimed Oprah Winfrey was the author of the poem. It's Amanda Gorman. Oprah Oprah did write the the foreword. Yeah, that's exactly right, Jake. And I spoke to the parent who made the complaint. I had a bunch of questions for her, but she didn't want to be interviewed and she did not want to answer any of those questions. Now, the parent was able to challenge the book under Florida's parental rights in education law. In the complaint, the parent wrote that she objected to the material because the poem, quote, is not educational and have indirectly hate messages. She said the poem, quote, caused confusion and indoctrination. Now, I asked her when we were on the phone what part of the poem she found hateful and confusing. She wouldn't say. A committee made up of educators at the school agreed to move the book from the elementary section to the middle school section of the K-8 through schools media center. Jake? How has Amanda Gorman responded to this? 
Yeah, well, as you can imagine, Gorman uh, is uh, gutted by the decision. Those were her exact words. She wrote a letter saying that children are being robbed at the chance to find their voices in literature. Now, a parent with the Florida Freedom to Read Project, that is a group that tracks these book bans across the state of Florida, they said that restricting access to this book is still censorship. Here's what this one parent told us. I want to see these districts understand that removing access is actually a ban and, you know, and I want them to be more transparent with parents like me um, so that I understand what's being removed, you know, from my child's library and I have the opportunity to appeal that decision. And Jake, this controversy really is not going anywhere. Miami-Dade's mayor has weighed in on all of this. She invited Gorman here to South Florida to do a reading of her poem. Jake. All right, Carlos Suarez in Miami, Florida. Thank you so much. Joining us now is poet Elizabeth Alexander. Dr. Alexander recited her poem, Praise Song for the Day at President Barack Obama's inauguration in 2009. And uh, Dr. Alexander, over the weekend at Yale, uh, the commencement there, you spoke about this very issue about banning books. Here's a little snippet of what you said. Right now, we're feeling the impact of these bigger and bigger steps toward restriction, censorship, and disempowerment in education. And I must ask, what exactly do those who are banning education fear? What do you think they fear? Well, I mean, I really do have questions. Uh, do they fear a fully functional, multivocal, multicultural democracy? where everybody's voice is important and where we acknowledge that we come from many different places and together make up this extraordinary country? Do they fear learning itself? Do they fear exposure to ideas that are unfamiliar to them? Although I must say, in the case of this inaugural poem, which I'd love to speak about for a moment, uh, the, the job of the inaugural poem is to speak to everyone uh, at a moment where the country is doing its democracy, if you will. It is transferring power. It is on the stage with the entire elected federal government on that stage. And that is what Amanda Gorman, I think, in a very extraordinary way for a very young woman who has served as a role model to many, managed to talk about our complexity at the same time that she brought hope and aspiration. And that's, I think, the job of the inaugural poem. So my answer to what do they fear is more questions, because I really don't know. I mean, certainly we can understand a parent who thinks that some book uh, has sexually explicit content that should not be available to a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old. But I don't even remotely understand what this parent is objecting to, and I don't really understand why one parent gets to decide or at least create this, this, even if it's temporary, censorship of something that is perfectly innocent. Well, this, um, this book is being challenged along a continuum with a tremendous increase in book banning and challenging. And of those books that, are, that have been banned and challenged, the vast, overwhelming majority of them are by people of color and deal with issues of sexuality and with uh, and gender as well. So now that the different voices, I think Amanda Gorman said, you know, it was so hard for so many of those voices to get onto the bookshelves in the first place. 
and now uh, at, at, at not only a disproportionate rate, but driven by a very, very small number of people. Right. So uh, that, let, well, me, let, me, let me just jump in there because mm-hmm. The Washington Post did an analysis and their analysis suggests that there are only 11 people who filed these complaints or challenges against books that, and these 11 had an overwhelming influence on so, dozens of books uh, being banned or restricted. Um, why? It's almost a tyranny of the minority that, that, that this, a small group of people get empowered to decide what thousands of, of children have access to, even if their parents don't have a problem with it. Well, I think that's exactly right. And I think the problem with sowing fear is that then other people become afraid and they don't even know what it is that they're afraid of and they don't even know what they haven't been exposed to. But I I also want to hone in small number, but whose stories, whose lives, whose history, if we're going to tell American history in all of its fulsomeness, we have to include the many people who are part of American history. And I think that that is what's important as well. You know, the American Library Association tracks uh, what they call book challenging, what we might call <clears throat> book banning. And it has been increasing at a tremendous rate. In the speech, uh, graduation speech at Yale that you mentioned, I told the graduating seniors that five times as many books had been banned now compared to 2019 when they entered college in the first place. So, Mm. I mean, I think also the question for those people graduating with their education is what does it mean if some people have access to knowledge and it is kept from others? It was a different commencement address at a different Ivy League school, but President Eisenhower at Dartmouth in the 50s said, don't join the book burners. That's a lesson I wish more people would get. Poet, Dr. Elizabeth Alexander, an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Daylight just breaking in Guam, where a powerful typhoon is slamming that American territory with strong winds, heavy rain, mudslides, blackouts. A look at the most powerful storm to hit that island in 60 years. Stay with us. In our world lead, it is a bit early for hurricane season along the U.S. East Coast, but it is a far different story in the South Pacific. Take a look at what smashed into Guam today, which is a U.S. territory. Typhoon Mawar passed just north of the island, but as CNN's Ivan Watson reports, the storm is so immense. People on Guam endured exceptional winds, storm surge, and torrential rainfall. The island of Guam is taking a beating. America's westernmost territory hammered by Typhoon Mawar, possibly the most powerful storm system to hit this Pacific island in decades. This is an extremely dangerous and life-threatening situation. The National Weather Service reporting winds of 115 to 140 miles per hour, apparently knocking out the agency's wind sensors. Those winds are generating some massive sea Uh, And we're seeing maximum sea heights around 40 feet at the Retidian buoy. That is incredible. In anticipation of dangerous winds and storm surges, the territory's governor ordered an evacuation of low-lying coastal areas. She's instructing the population to stay indoors. Please, I ask you to follow these instructions for your safety and for your protection. 
stay home until I declare condition of readiness for. By mid-afternoon on Wednesday, only 1,000 of the Guam Power Authority's 52,000 customers still had electricity. This is incredible. I don't think I've ever seen so much lightning in a typhoon before. The eyewall of Typhoon Mawar lashing the northern end of the island. That's the location of Anderson Air Force Base, a sprawling military installation we filmed from a plane in better weather back in 2017. We've also passed over Anderson Air Force Base, where B-1 bombers have been flying out of. Guam is home to thousands of American military service personnel and their families. The island's total population of more than 150,000 inhabitants now facing a very tough night. This is going to be kind of a long night. It is going to be scary. You can hear the sounds. The winds are howling. Things are breaking. And so just be together, talk to each other, and uh, things will slow down toward midnight and continue into Thursday morning. Jake, the sun came up over Guam about two hours ago. I just got off the phone with a resident there who said the water was out, the electricity was out. There's almost no telecommunications uh, to speak of. Debris uh, everywhere, and everybody she'd spoken to had had some flooding uh, through windows and doors uh, into their homes. The USS Nimitz Carrier Strike Group, uh, defense officials tell CNN's Oren Lieberman, uh, is on its way to Guam and can provide assistance. President Biden, before the storm struck, uh, announced uh, uh, he granted emergency declarations. FEMA is on the ground there to help. All right, Ivan Watson, thanks so much. As we reported earlier, legendary singer Tina Turner has passed away. A look at some of the tributes pouring in. But first, here is CNN's Wolf Blitzer with what is next in the Situation Room. Wolf. Jake, we're standing by for a major development in the race for the White House. The Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, is just minutes away from publicly throwing his hat into the ring during an unconventional interview on Twitter. According to a new CNN poll, DeSantis is by far the biggest threat to Donald Trump's path to the Republican nomination, although he now trails the former president by more than 20 points in our new poll. The DeSantis campaign hopes the audio announcement will help him reclaim some of the momentum from his landslide re-election last fall. All of that coming up right at the top of the hour, right here in the Situation Room. Sad news in our pop culture lead music legend Tina Turner has died at the age of 83. Her family says she passed away peacefully after a long illness. Queen of rock and roll, of course, rose to fame from humble beginnings and overcame a horribly abusive marriage to become one of the most popular artists of all time. Angela Bassett, who portrayed Turner in the film What's Love Got to Do With It, said in a statement, quote, through her courage in telling her story, her commitment to stay the course in her life, no matter the sacrifice, and her determination to carve out a space in rock and roll for herself and for others who look like her, Tina Turner showed others who lived in fear what a beautiful future, filled with love, compassion, and freedom, should look like, unquote. May her memory be a blessing. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky if you have an invite, and the TikTok, which I'm back on, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead once you get your podcasts, all two hours, just sitting there like a big, delicious bowl of jell rice. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call The Situation Room.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.